several times since I became the youth pastor here at this church. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a great time. And I can remember the first time that I went. Uh, it was, I think it was probably the first year that I, when I had gotten hired here as the youth pastor, that next summer we went. And it's a little intimidating. This idea that, okay, everything that I need to survive the next few days, has, I have to carry that on my back. Right? I grew up my whole life going camping, but you have lots more room in a car, in a truck, in a trailer than you do in a backpack. And so there was kind of that feeling of like, what do you need to pack? What do you need to bring? Uh, but luckily, Pastor Bob had gone on backpacking trips before, and so he, uh, he printed out, REI has this backpacking packing list for you. And so he printed that out for those that had never gone before, and we went over it and saw all the different things that you need to bring for a backpacking trip. And there's, there's quite a few things that you need. Uh, one of them is, is shelter, like a tent is a good thing to bring. Um, and believe it or not, it, uh, in the middle of August in the Pacific Northwest, it can still rain, and I learned that the hard way one year. And so you want, you want some sort of shelter. It's, it's good to bring, you know, a sleeping bag and a pillow for sleeping at night. Uh, you want to bring, you know, survival tools, maybe a pocket knife, that kind of thing, maybe a first aid kit. You don't want to forget toilet paper. That's another thing. Uh, food. You got to bring food with you. You don't want to run out of food on a backpacking trip. And so uh, you can go the dehydrated food route or you can go the, uh, you know, real food. Dehydrated food's quite a bit lighter, though, so that's nice. So you need all these different things, but there's one more thing. I left out, actually, the most important thing that you need for a backpacking trip. And ironically, it's the one thing that you can never bring enough of. Do you know what that is? Water. Water. It's the most important thing, right? Second to air, it's one of those, like, essential things we need to survive. Luckily, they have air up in the mountains, unless you're climbing Mount Everest. But, uh, so you need water. But the problem with water is you need a lot of it, especially if you're carrying a heavy backpack walking up a mountain in the, in, in the summertime. You need lots of water. But also, water weighs a lot. It's pretty heavy. It takes up a lot of room. And so you can't really realistically bring enough of it for your whole trip. Maybe if it was one short overnighter. But besides that, you can't really bring enough of it for your trip. So what do you do? In a very real way, you have to rely on God to provide water while you're up there. Now, most of us don't think of it that way, right? We live in the Pacific Northwest. It rains a lot. We're not questioning whether there's going to be water up in the mountains there. But in a real way, we, you do still have to trust that God's going to provide for you while you're up there. And, and you bring a water filter because you, you don't want to take that chance. But you're trusting in God to provide that water. So how does that relate to what we're talking about today? I'm not just here giving a backpacking seminar. We're talking about God's Word, and today we're in John chapter 7, and, and we're going to see in John chapter 7, um, Jesus is, is in the midst of one of the feasts, and this feast, the Feast of Booths, is remind, remembering, reminding the people of their time in the wilderness when they had to trust, when they had to rely on God to provide for them. And John does something pretty cool here. Uh, we, we've seen some of the connections in the early chapters, and in these kind of more middle chapters, chapters, uh, we, we see God relate, We see John relating uh, what Jesus is saying about certain feasts, certain holidays, and how he teaches and interacts with those, and how it connects to them. Chapter five, we see the Sabbath. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, which causes quite a stir. In chapter six, it's Passover. And Jesus feeds 5,000 people on the Passover, providing bread for them, and then telling them that he is the bread of life. 
When we get to John chapter 7, where are we at? We are at the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Tents. And so what's this whole feast about? Well, that context will help us understand what what Jesus is going to say and talk about here. So what's going on? here is uh, this was a feast. It was eight days long, and the Israelites would set up a tent or a booth out in front of their house, and they would live in that for the week. And the purpose of this was to remember and to celebrate uh, that time when God had led the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the wilderness. And they spent 40 years in tents in the wilderness before they got to the promised land. And so it was reminding, reminding them of that time when God provided for them. So that's kind of the context that we're going, we're going into this chapter with. And uh, we have some introductions here. Jesus has a conversation with his brothers. And his brothers, we find out his brothers don't believe in him. And they're kind of making some comments about, well, are you going down to the feast? Don't you need to show yourself? If you're going to be a teacher, you need to teach people. And, and Jesus says, my time is not fully yet come. And so he, he says, I'm going to wait. And his brothers go down, but Jesus does go down, but he goes down later. He goes down in private. He, he goes down secretly. Not like the time later where he'll go down the triumphal entry at Passover time. He goes down in secret. And in the midst of the feasts, the, some people are talking about him. Where's Jesus? We expected him to be here. The Pharisees are looking for him. They're still looking for a way to arrest him. Uh, but, but he's staying quiet for the first part of the feast. And then it says in the middle of the feast, this is verse 14, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Jesus goes up and he starts teaching in the middle of the feast. But we don't actually know, we don't hear about what he's teaching about. Most of this chapter here is is people's response to his teaching and then his response to them. That's what most of this chapter that we're going to see is about. So Jesus is teaching and what is the people's response it says here in verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? What does that mean? Jesus never went to rabbinical school. He never studied under a rabbi. He doesn't have the, the certification, right? He doesn't have the qualifications. He didn't go to rabbi university and get his diploma. And, and it was that, going through those processes, that gave somebody the authority to teach God's word, and yet Jesus doesn't have that. So I think some people are just surprised. Wow, this guy has really great teaching for never having gone through that. But a lot of other people, especially the religious leaders, are saying he doesn't have authority to say these things. He doesn't have the credentials, right? He doesn't have the degree to say these things. They're questioning Jesus' authority. And actually, we see that a lot with Jesus' teaching, is that it's not that they were so against what he was saying, they were so against who he was and who he said he was. The question wasn't, are these things good, are these things right? The question was, does he have the authority to say these things? And so they bring up this question of, does Jesus have the authority? Jesus answers them. Verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will. He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. What is, what is Jesus doing here? He's saying, I'm not saying these things on my own authority. My authority comes from the one who sent me. Father is the one who told me to say these things. The Father is the one who has given me these things. In some ways, it's almost like I did go 
and study under a rabbi, and that rabbi happens to be the Almighty God. And so Jesus isn't asserting his own authority. No, I can say these things. He's submitting to the Father's authority. And as we think about authority and authority coming from outside yourself, I think of a police officer. You can talk about a police officer having power and authority. Authority is the badge, right? Power is the gun. And, and so the, the city or the county or the state has given that police officer the authority to enforce the law, right? They've been given that authority by someone else. If I just woke up tomorrow morning and said, you know what, I'm going to start enforcing the law, and I just went out and started trying to arrest people or trying to pull people over and give them tickets and enforce the law, would that go very well? No. Not only would I probably get arrested for impersonating a police officer, uh, it, it, I don't have that authority because I can't just stand up and, and give myself the authority. In order to get that authority, you have to go through lots of training and schooling and, and all, all that kind of stuff to be given that authority and that badge that says, we give you the authority to enforce the law. And so Jesus isn't appealing to his own authority. He's appealing to the authority of the Father. When, and the thing is, is could Jesus just stand up and say, guys, I created the world, right? John 1.1, 1, 1, right? Jesus was there at the beginning. Jesus has the authority. He could just do that, but he doesn't. He appeals to the Father's authority. God has given, God has sent me to say these things. God has sent me to do these things, and he appeals to God's authority. And it's really important here that we understand this. Jesus has the authority because he's about to say something very difficult, very hard. And if Jesus doesn't have the authority, then you don't have to pay attention to it. But the truth is Jesus does have the authority. And lots of people were questioning it. And they bring up this, this situation uh, that we, we talked about in John chapter 5 where Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And they were saying, Jesus, you can't do that. That's working on the Sabbath. You're breaking the law. And Jesus says, no, that's not, I, I can't do that. My father is working on the Sabbath. He says it many different ways. And here, in the, in the last part of this paragraph here, Jesus appeals to the law to show that what he did was not wrong. Because they circumcise on the Sabbath. Every male child that is born was to be circumcised on the eighth day. Well, what happens if that eighth day lands on the Sabbath? Wouldn't that be working on the Sabbath? Well, they break the Sabbath law in order to keep circumcision. And Jesus says, so how can you be mad at me when I made a man's whole body well on the Sabbath? Jesus has the authority to say these things. Jesus has the authority to do what he's doing. And that helps us get to this next section. We get one little section of what Jesus was, was teaching. Not just talking about how he does have the authority, but, but what is he teaching here? And this is verses 37 through 39, just three verses here where Jesus teaches the people. We get, we get an idea of what Jesus is teaching the people. It says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, as you hear that, it kind of sounds like something Jesus would say. You might think back to John chapter 4, the woman at the well, talking about living water that he would give her and she would never thirst again. Um, but there's something deeper going on here. And it connects back to this feast of what's going on. So I mentioned a couple of the things earlier, right? They're, they're, they're living in tents all week out in front of their house. But there's another thing that would happen. For the first seven days of the feast, every day, there was kind of this ritual. The priest 
would take a, a golden pitcher, a golden flagon, and go down to the pool of Siloam, and they'd fill that pitcher up with water. And then they would march it back to the temple in, in the midst of this like parade, right? People are lining the streets, praising God. They sing this thing called the Hallel, which is Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. So they're singing, they're praising God as the priest brings this pitcher of water up to the temple and he pours it into this basin next to the altar. And this whole thing was to symbolize, was to represent God's provision of water in the wilderness. If you remember, right, I was talking about backpacking earlier, the most important thing you need in the wilderness is water. And the Israelites didn't have that out in the wilderness and so God provided them for that. Remember, uh, Moses struck the rock and water comes out and the people have water. And so they remember that every morning for the first seven days of the feast. Now, I don't know why they didn't do it the eighth day, but for the first seven days of the feast, they remember that and they did that. Well, now we get to the eighth day. And they didn't do that that morning. And so Jesus stands up and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I mean, can you believe Jesus just said that? Could you imagine the people around there looking at him and, did you hear what he just said? Because this whole time they're thinking about God is the one who provides the water, God is the one who gives us provision, and yet now Jesus is standing up saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In verse 38, he continues, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus has just said this extraordinary thing, right? He's put himself up there with God again. Jesus is the one who provides the water, the satisfaction. And and there's more going on here, but if we just pause here and reflect on this, Jesus is the one who satisfies. Where do you go for satisfaction? Where do you look for satisfaction in your life? That's a regular need, a regular thing that we want is to be satisfied. And so maybe we work hard to feel satisfied about what we do. Uh, maybe we look for satisfaction in, in movies and in TV and entertainment. Maybe we look for satisfaction in food. Maybe we look for satisfaction in relationships and all these other things. But ultimately, they will all fall short. Where does our true satisfaction lie? It's in Jesus. Jesus is the one who truly satisfies who has the water that we drink of and will never thirst again. That's where true satisfaction lies. But there's more going on here than just this. So Jesus has the authority, and Jesus gives the provision, right? Gives what we need. But, but what is it that we really need? And as we read this, it, it could be kind of confusing. But luckily for us, John gives us a little side note. Um, as, he, as he wrote this book, he, he gives us a little, little something extra to connect what happens later with what Jesus is saying now. Verse 39, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. John's saying, you know what he's really talking about here? Because Jesus isn't talking about physical water. I mean, you probably knew that, but Jesus didn't stand up in the temple next to a lemonade stand and say, come to me, all who are thirsty, and I will give you drink, right? We knew he was talking about something more, but what exactly was he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll be honest, when I first read this, it was kind of like, why is Jesus going there with this? Isn't, I mean, shouldn't he be talking about that later, like after he dies and and rises again? Because that's when the Spirit comes, right? Not till Pentecost, 
It's not for a while. So why is, shouldn't Jesus be more on mission and more on point with like dying and raising, raising from the dead, those kinds of things? That's what kind of went through my mind. And yet when you look at the whole story of Scripture, this actually makes a lot of sense, that Jesus is really getting to the heart of this whole story of the Bible. But to understand that, we have to go back to the beginning. Who is the Spirit as we talk about the Spirit? We have a lot of ideas, right? We talk about spiritual gifts and empowerment of the Holy Spirit, regeneration, sanctification, all these fancy words involved with the Holy Spirit. But its most basic form, who is the Holy Spirit? You go back to the beginning, to the first page in Genesis 1, and it says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God is the presence of God. And, and that connects with this feast as well. Remember, they're, they're thinking about, they're celebrating that time in the wilderness. Well, what happened in the wilderness? God redeemed them out of Egypt. God provides them food, manna, quail. He provides them water. They live in tents. God gives them the law on Mount Sinai. And part of that law was instructions to build a tent, a pretty big tent, in a very special tent. It was called the tabernacle. Why did they build that tabernacle? They did that so that God could dwell among them. You see, God, from the beginning, the plan was that he would dwell with his people. They would rule with them, with him. But sin separated us from God. So now there was separation between us and God from that day forward. And the whole story of the Bible is God bringing us back together with him. And he does that in a little way, in a symbolic way, in a a real way, in the wilderness with the Israelites. They build the tabernacle. God's presence comes down to the tabernacle, and he can be among them, right? There's some separation still, and yet he's among them. He's near them. He's chosen them to be his people that he could be among them. And so the presence of God is in the tabernacle. Later on, that presence of God is, is in the temple as well. And ultimately, that whole, that's that whole story of the Bible coming back to bringing us back into relight, to right relationship with God, bringing us back into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of the living God. So Jesus is right on mission when he says this here, right? It's not fully realized until later, after he dies and rises again and when Pentecost comes. But what is Jesus talking about here? Whoever's thirsty, come to me and let him drink. I will give him the Holy Spirit. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What does it mean that we receive the Holy Spirit when we believe? Like I said, we usually think of spiritual gifts and empowerment and that kind of stuff. But in its most basic way, God is bringing us back to the garden. Right? We now can have close relationship with God again. Now, don't get me wrong, we're still looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth when that's more fully realized, when we're not living in a fallen world. But even in the midst of this fallen world, we have the spirit of the living God, of the almighty God within us, dwelling inside of us. We have become the tabernacle, the temple. We have become the holy of holies. And it sounds weird to say that, and yet it's true. We have the Holy Spirit living in us so that we may know God, so that we may have that relationship with God that we were supposed to have since the beginning, but it got broken by sin. And that's what Jesus is really talking about here. 
Jesus has the authority to provide the all-satisfying presence of God to us. Will you come to him? And that's what's really going on here, right? That that big picture, because there's so much in this chapter, is we see that Jesus has the authority. He can say and do these things because his authority comes from God. Now, we know that he has the authority within himself, but he's also humbling himself and submitting to the Father's authority. Jesus provides what we need. And I'm not talking about material possessions here. What we need is God. What we need is Jesus, and he provides himself. He provides the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in us, to give us a relationship with God. Another way to say this is, you know, our mission is to live in and give out the life of Jesus. We're called to live in the life of Jesus. How do we do that? Well, the most obvious basic way is through the word of God and through prayer. We live in that life of Jesus, knowing God more, right? This, this whole series is about knowing God. We know God through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we live in the life of Jesus by reading his word, by knowing God more, by praying, by having that relationship, having that connection with God. And then we give out that life of Jesus to others. Now, I'm not saying that we are the ones who fill other people with the Holy Spirit. I'm saying that we give out the life of Jesus, that impact, right? The fruit of the Spirit in our life, the impact that that has on other people that shows them what it's like to live in the life of Jesus. And that's what we do. Now, we can do that many, many different ways, right? In, in everything, we can live out, we can give out the life of Jesus. But I want to give you a few concrete examples this morning that you can be thinking about. How does this relate to your life? Today's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. A lot of us are going to go home later today and are going to celebrate Father's Day with our family. Maybe you'll have people over to your house. Maybe you'll go over to somebody else's house. But you're going to celebrate that, that Father's Day. But there's some people here who may not have fathers. Maybe they never really knew their father. Maybe their father has died and they don't have a father anymore. And, and maybe you know one of those people. Could you invite them into your family for today? Celebrate Father's Day with you. Become a father to them. Invite them into that. Live in the life of Jesus and give out the life of Jesus. Show them what, what living like Jesus is really about. Could you do that today? Do you have a job where you work with other people, where you have coworkers? Could you have lunch with one of them sometime? And just, just have lunch with them. Talk to them. Hang out with them. Build a relationship with them to show them what it looks like to live in the life of Jesus. That's how we give out the life of Jesus. Could you invite their family over for dinner to your house? Invite them in. Give out the life of Jesus that way. Are you a stay-at-home mom? Do you work at home every day with your kids? How can you give out the life of Jesus to your children every day as you love them, as you teach them, as you show them the love of Christ, as you show them what it means to, to, to follow him, as you, as you read his word, as you show them Jesus more? You can give out the life of Jesus. Maybe you have friends, neighbors, people around you that you can give out the life of Jesus as well. 
this message divides people. Um, I've, I've heard it said that you can't understand the message of Jesus and remain neutral. You got to pick a side. And when Jesus says these things, people pick sides. And there's some people that say, this must be the Christ, this must be a prophet. But there's others, Pharisees and people that follow the Pharisees that go, no, who is this? He comes from Galilee. He, this can't be the Messiah. This isn't him. And they reject him. But if you've chosen to follow him, how are you going to live in the life of Jesus and give out the life of Jesus? I have one more example here. And uh, to do that, I want to invite the first through fifth grade Sunday school class up here to these steps. They're on their way in. <clears throat> these kids, the last few months, have been living in the life of Jesus. They've been memorizing 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Yes, a whole chapter of the Bible. And, and that's what it means to live in the life of Jesus, right? To be memorizing, internalizing, meditating on Scripture. And so these kids have been, have been living in the life of Jesus by memorizing that Scripture. And today they're going to give out the life of Jesus by reciting it in front of you. They're going to do that this morning. And, and I hope that you can be encouraged. I hope that you can, you can be challenged maybe. I hope that you can really feel that life of Jesus here as these young ones recite God's word, right? Because God's word is powerful. And so these kids this morning are going to give out the life of Jesus to you.